Hey everyone, it's Aaron. Our next episode is with the CEO of New Belgium Brewing, Steve Feckheimer. Before you listen, I just wanted to give you a heads up on what they're doing for COVID-19 relief. So they launched the Bar and Restaurant Relief Fund to support food and beverage employees in Fort Collins and Asheville and the surrounding communities. They seeded it with about $50,000. Their goal is to raise $100,000. As of this recording, they've raised $85,000. I'm sure they'll be raising more. So if you can, go ahead and Google that, New Belgium Brewing, the Bar and Restaurant Relief Fund. If you can help out, please do. Enjoy the episode. Broadcasting from the 10 Hudson Square building, home of WNYC Radio here in Soho, New York. Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies. My guest today is Steve Fetchheimer. Steve is CEO of New Belgium Brewing. New Belgium Brewing is a certified B Corp and is recognized as a leader in sustainability and social responsibility. They're also the first brewery to join the 1% for the planet an organization whose members contribute at least 1% of their annual sales to environmental causes. Before joining New Belgium, Steve worked for several years as Senior VP and Chief Strategy Officer at Jim Beam, beverage company most recognized for its bourbon whiskey. He took his exceptional strategic leadership skills, and he didn't tell me to write that. I'm just saying this based on popular lore, to New Belgium Brewing in 2017, and has since worked to expand the company's presence, as well as advance there are many sustainable initiatives. Steve, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you, Aaron. Really happy to be here. I'm going to bring you everywhere I go for such a wonderful introduction. <laughs> I'm kind of little, so you can put me in a knapsack or something and just kind of carry me around. So I'll be your own personal promoter if you'd like. I love it. So listen, you've had an amazing career. I didn't even mention the fact that you worked at, didn't you work at Sierra Club as well? Did I get that right? I worked at a company called Sierra Club Green Home, which was actually a public-private partnership trying to drive really sustainable actions among homeowners. It was really a startup business. I was the first employee there for about a year. And it was based on home construction and home improvements to make your home more environmentally sustainable. That was right before the recession of 2009. So it was a little bit hard to get people to do home improvement projects. So the business didn't last a long time. It was a really great learning experience. It was great to work with all the people at Sierra Club. But it was an offshoot. It was related to Sierra Club, the larger international organization, right? Correct. So, and the reason why I mentioned that is because you have this incredible past of having worked for them. You worked in consulting for BCG for a little while as well. You obviously worked inside of Spirits. What led you, and before we'll talk about the sale of New Belgium, but what actually led you to arrive at New Belgium's doorstep? There's really a couple of reasons, Aaron. I think first, Fat Tire really actually had personal meaning to me as a brand. And that was something that was really important to me. I grew up in Michigan, but my dad took us out to Colorado to ski every year since I was a little kid. And once I was old enough and doing those trips with him, those trips always meant a few fat tires. And so I was sort of of legal age or close enough to legal age as New Belgium was expanding in Colorado. And so it was a really sort of unique brand experience and beer experience with my dad when I was coming out on all those trips. So I've been a brand fan for a long time. And so it's cool to get to work somewhere where you feel that personal connection with the product itself. But beyond that, I was really inspired by the mission behind New Belgium and wanted to join and really help build the company and drive that purpose behind New Belgium as much as I could. And Frankly, it's a little bit easier to roll out of bed each morning 
when you're trying to prove the business can be a force for good. And that's what New Belgium really talks about as goal as a company is proving the business can be a force for good. Those two are probably selfish reasons to some degree. But I think the broader reason as well was I thought I could help. You talked a little bit about my background, but a lot of the work I'd done with Jim Beam was really applicable to where New Belgium was in terms of now being nationally distributed and thinking about how do we manage a national sales force? How do we build national brands? That was a lot of the work I'd done in my previous roles. And so I thought by coming here, I could, I could really help New Belgium achieve some of those goals. What was it like working with two very passionate founders that had such a strong storyline, which in part brought you to the company, and helping them to see, one, how do you scale the business now that it's more nationally known, but also then prep it for sale? I think that my prior experience really helped prepare me for this. One thing that was really true at Jim Beam, the founders of those brands were really still involved. So Fred No, who's seventh generation of the Beam family is still really involved in the business. And Bill and Rob Samuels, who are kind of second and third generation of Makers Mark, which was another brand that we own there, were really involved in the business. And there were other examples as well. And I could appreciate what was important to the founder within sort of managing a brand and thinking about growth and balance that against what were some of the business needs at the time. And so I came in with that experience and I came in really appreciating what a founder like Kim Jordan means to a brand, it means to a business, it means to a culture, and wasn't afraid to sort of build on that and really lean on her expertise in particular in terms of what was right for New Belgium and what wasn't right for New Belgium. And having that founder there is just, it's really a benefit, I think, to someone like me stepping into this role because you have someone who knows the business so well and you have someone who can really give you that meaningful advice around what's going to be true to the company. And at the same time, they have to give you the leeway and trust in you and working alongside of them to be able to carry on that mission, not denigrate it, but actually amplify it, bring it to life in new ways, and only make it stronger in ways in which might they might not have that skill set, but their vision still wants to remain true. That's very true. And I feel very fortunate. You do hear sometimes horror stories about people who come in after a founder and there's always some complicated relationships there. And Kim was amazing as I transitioned in here and was sort of the perfect mix of guidance and mentorship, but also giving me the freedom to say, New Belgium needs to do a few things differently and here's what they are and here's how we can think about both pushing our mission and our goals, as well as really thinking about the financials of business in a different way. She was really open to that. And as I said, that doesn't always happen, but I feel quite fortunate in the situation. And when you came into it, was it 100% employee-owned? It was. So it's been it transitioned to be 100% employee-owned in 2012. It had been employee-owned before that, really since around 2000, the very end of 99, but it had not been 100% until. Did you then bring the B Corp certification to the company when you joined or had that already been in the works? That actually predates me as well. It does. Okay. But I'm sure it was another draw amongst a long list of draws for you to come to the company. Well, it was. And the B Corp certification is really emblematic of all of the things that are really important to New Belgium. And as we talk about proving business can be a force for good, we can use sort of the B Corp guidelines around community and coworkers and the environment to drive a lot of the decisions. And so New Belgium was very much a leader in this space, both in beer, but even more broadly among companies. And it, to me, was proof that what they said was their mission and their goals and how they want to run a business 
was actually how they were choosing to run a business because of their relationship. And can you talk a little bit about what makes New Belgium so special, really from a purpose standpoint? I think most people who love beer would agree that the brands, the beer itself, especially Fat Tire, they speak for themselves. They've established themselves in the marketplace. The things that you do with your grants program and some of your in-kind donations, and also I mentioned earlier in the intro, the 1% for the planet. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. And I think in many ways, it's helpful to go back a step and think about when Kim and her then husband, Jeff, were founding New Belgium, which was really 1991 is what we think of as the founding of New Belgium. Although for Jeff, he had taken a trip to Belgium in, in 1988, actually, and used his bike to go all around the country and drink different beers and learn how to make Belgian beers and really brought that passion back. What I think was really interesting about that story is before Kim and Jeff ever brewed a beer, they actually sat down and thought about what's the kind of company that they want to build. And they really came up with, at that time, four what we now call core values and beliefs, but really four things they wanted to focus on. One was, to your point a minute ago, around making world-class beer. And the second one sort of related to beer was around promoting beer culture, the enjoyment of beer. And then the third one was around environmental stewardship. And we'll talk about that more, I'm sure, as we kind of go into some B Corp aspects. But that was a real founding tenant of what was important to Kim and Jeff. And then the fourth one was around having fun. And a lot of times through my consulting career in particular, I saw companies trying to sort of create a history for their company and create a set of core values and beliefs based on where they were in the marketplace at that point. But I think why New Belgium has been so successful is that the company started with a lot of these core values and beliefs. And so all of the decisions from day one were really based off of that and have driven a real authenticity around what New Belgium tries to do and proving the business can be a force for good. I think that's very different. I think that's very cool. That's how the company started. And that was the framing for all of the decisions that have ever been made. And I know we're going to be jumping around, but just on that point, were you concerned before selling the company very recently that those values could be compromised in a sale? And my guess is that when you're negotiating the sale and operating structure and control, you said to, I think it's Kieran International, but I know it's a subsidiary of theirs. It's based in Australia that bought you. You probably said these are four non-negotiable things that make us who we are and who we always want to be. And actually, it's the reason why you want to buy us. So don't mess with those things. Kind of like Ben and Jerry's at the Unilever. I think it was very similar. And that was something our board actually set out a set of criteria. We said, if we're going to engage in conversations around an acquisition, these are the non-negotiables in terms of partnership. And there was lots of things on that list, but respecting New Belgium's core values and beliefs and being a company where we thought those core values and beliefs could thrive and be successful was one of those key criteria, non-negotiables that our board had laid out for those conversations. And so that is part of what led us to Lion and Lion's the subsidiary of Kieran that you mentioned. That's what led us to Lion because they do share many of those beliefs with us. And they are real leaders, especially on environmental stewardship issues and the way they treat their employees. They are a really good company along those dimensions. And that made those conversations easier because we were never going to choose 
to sacrifice our core values and beliefs as we thought about teaming up with a larger company that we thought could help us in other ways. I've been on the other end of these things from the communication side in M&A and even divestitures. And I always remind at least my client that you have to focus on the marriage, not the wedding. And everybody's so focused on the press release and what it looks like in the deal. But it's all those softer things and how you work together and what you stand for and how you represent yourself in the marketplace and the things that you do that help uphold your values. That's the marriage part. And that's the stuff that you really need to focus on. Otherwise, it's not going to end well. Yeah. And if I was going to make a pitch for B Corps and without kind of geeking out too much about it. One of the things that's awesome about being a B Corp is you have the legal right to take the broader view of stakeholders into account when you're making decisions. So a traditional C Corp, one of the problems with it, and one of the things you see in sort of economic debate today is you have a shareholder supremacy issue. And that's the only thing as a board that you're allowed to take into account is your fiduciary responsibility. And certainly as a B Corp, as a board member of the B Corp, you have a strong fiduciary responsibility, but you're also allowed to take those broader stakeholders, employees, and community and environment into account when you're thinking through a merger or an acquisition. That's really important. And that's for companies that really thrive on and very strongly about their culture and their core values. Making that transition to a B Corp to give your board and your leadership the ability to balance those stakeholders in a different way. It's almost a new right, if you will, within the sort of corporate guidelines in the US, but it's really cool. It's really different. I think it's actually really important to the future success of companies in the US that they have that latitude to think about their stakeholders more broadly in these decisions. Yeah, it's more than just the symbol. It's really a backstop is what you're saying. And it's one of the core goals. So you're saying that the shareholder and the fiduciary responsibilities of being able to represent the shareholder as broadly as defined as shareholders are, there's more of an equality of the shareholder as well as the values and what you're giving back to society as a whole based on what you've set out for as a company. For sure. And the laws aren't so clear and the guidelines aren't so clear as to say it's X percent fiduciary and Y percent employees, but you have clear latitude to think about what's best for the whole in these kinds of transactions. And frankly, not just in the transaction, but in the way you choose to run your business every single day. You are not only allowed to, but are expected to think about your community and the environment and that broader stakeholder group in everything that you choose to do. And you mentioned culture or beer culture, to be specific, as one of the original kind of four guiding values. Talk about that a little bit, because at least beer culture of the good old days is pretty genderized. How does New Belgium approach beer culture in terms of how you define it and how you insert yourself into it and how you resonate with your consumers there? And I think there's a difference between how did perhaps New Belgium originally think about some of this and then how are we thinking about it today and how has that evolved over time? That original conversation around beer culture was about the enjoyment of beer. And if you spend much time in Europe, you realize that there's almost a reverence around beer that doesn't exist in the same way in the United States, or certainly didn't exist in that way, say, when craft beer was really in its nascent stages in the late 80s, early 90s. And that's around the right type of glassware for the beer that you have and clean glassware. And how is that served to you? And how is a beer presented? And how do you enjoy that and realize the flavors that are in that beer? And those were all things that weren't really happening in the U.S. beer industry prior to 
craft in the late 80s, early 90s. And so that was a lot of teaching people to enjoy better beer was what that core value and belief really stood for at the time. What that's evolving to now is how do we think about bringing more people and a more diverse group of people into craft beer? And how do we bring craft beer into more communities that haven't experienced really some of the economic and social benefits of having craft breweries? There are 8,000 give or take craft breweries in the U.S. today, which is wildly different than even a few years ago, but certainly different than when New Belgium started 30 years ago. You see those benefits, jobs, social gathering places disproportionately happening in, frankly, wealthier and more Caucasian neighborhoods. And we are thinking about how do we make craft beer more accessible to a broader group of people, because that is part of growing beer culture. And that is part of being a good community partner is bringing these benefits to a broader group of people across the country. How do you define craft beer? Given, like you said, there's maybe 8,000 brewers now and there's consolidation, obviously, and you can still maintain your identity and the way you go about things. But how's that changing and how will that continue to change? For us, it's still about, is it world-class beer? And we try to make beer that's not just good, but is really globally recognized for its quality in the marketplace. And we think of craft as really a, a set of skills that have been honed over time and really requires expert workers to deliver that final product. And in a lot of ways, I also think that's how consumers view it. You mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of acquisitions and consolidations, and that's true. And beer is supposed to be fun. And there are certainly a huge group of consumers who focus on independence and focus on brewery ownership. But the vast majority of consumers want a really good beer from a company that they want to support and they want to have fun with it. And we have to remember a lot of what our industry is about is about bringing people together for special occasions. That might be a night out with their friends or whatever it is, but we need to be part of that and not make the industry too stressful or too exclusive for consumers. We need to let them have fun. We need to let them have fun with our product, but do it with a high quality product because that's what consumers want. That's really how we think about it. I mean, I know you have multiple locations, but you were founded and you still have a very strong presence in Fort Collins, Colorado, right? Correct. I have to believe that connection with community, even if you don't live in that community, I mean, I have all sorts of incredible feelings about Colorado and I can tell you about my future, future plans of wanting to probably live in Boulder the rest of my life, but that's like a whole nother discussion and and my wife will get upset with me. But having that association is probably also very powerful and very important as well, regardless of who owns you and who you work with and where you're distributed. For sure. The community here in Fort Collins is really important to who New Belgium became. And having that cultural home for a brand, I think is really important today. There are so many made up brands out there. I'm not just talking about that in beer, but just in general in consumer goods. There's a lot of brands that were just created in a marketing agency boardroom. And New Belgium is very different. It was something that grew up here in Fort Collins and slowly expanded across the country over 26, 27 years to get to national distribution without ever forgetting our roots here in Fort Collins. And then certainly the, the new roots that we have in, in Asheville, North Carolina, where our other brewery, where our second brewery is located. Both of those towns are really important to us. And as a fun fact here in Fort Collins, we sell over one case of beer 
per each resident of Fort Collins every year. So we're really deeply ingrained in the community here. And we're something that I believe the residents of Fort Collins are really proud to have as a company in their hometown and as something that we export all around the country. I bet your retention rate's pretty high too. It has been really high over time. Turnover was low single digits for a long time as New Belgium was growing, but has always remained below 10% for the company. And our average tenure of employee is seven to eight years. And that's artificially low in the sense that we opened the Asheville Brewery only five years ago and hired a lot of new employees as we opened that brewery. So we have been really fortunate with retention throughout the growth of New Belgium. Yeah, if you normalize that number, it would be higher for sure. Yeah. And if you had to name, let's say, one or two of your favorite, generically, I'm calling them give back programs, that really brings the spirit of New Belgium alive in the community, in the communities that it serves, what would those be? So for me, the work we did with grid alternatives here in Colorado over the last two years was, I think, really emblematic of who New Belgium is. And We've given them slightly over $100,000 over the last two years through our grants program. And the Grid Alternatives vision is really to transition to clean, renewable energy for everyone, regardless of sort of your economic situation. And so they're really focused on bringing renewable energy to underserved communities. And so for New Belgium to be able to support something like that really speaks to what we're trying to do from engaging our community more broadly and from bringing some of the benefits of craft beer into new communities through the support of Grid Alternatives. I'm sure it's related, but how can you possibly be a certified zero-waste brewery? I mean, I know it's possible. It sounds like a lot of work and a lot of expense. Can you just walk me through how that happens or happened? It does. So I believe we're a platinum-certified zero-waste company. And a lot of that has to do with, obviously, how we deal with the excess sort of the remnants of the brewing process. And through that, we actually engage the local farming community here who can actually take a lot of the byproducts of the brewing process as cattle feed or fertilizer or other uses on farms around Colorado and similarly in North Carolina and around Asheville. They can take those byproducts and reuse them there so that we don't have to send things to the landfill. And then within the office, we obviously have fairly sophisticated sorting system for what gets recycled and how it gets recycled and where it all needs to go. And so that's what sort of drives that, essentially that certification for us. That's incredible, actually. And my guess is that you don't want to stop at platinum. There's probably something else unless platinum is the highest you can get. But are there greater goals as well where you foresee even refining that process and getting it down even further in terms of your footprint? We're always trying to get better across all of these environmental metrics. I would say we're more focused around renewable energy right now. Platinum certification for zero waste is a pretty good place to be on that dimension. Not that we won't try to get better, but the moves we can make in renewable energy are probably even greater. And given our concerns and focus as a company around climate change, that's where we'd like to be investing and trying to make as much progress as we can next couple of years. So this would be solar panels, trying to create more electricity from your process wastewater, 
repurposing heat, stuff like that, basically? Yeah, it's going to be a little bit of everything. So on-site renewables, we're the first wind-powered brewery 20 years ago. The employees elected to do that, and they elected to do that really in exchange for their annual bonuses that year. So it was a really cool move by the employees to do that. Then we put more solar panels on our roofs here in Fort Collins over our entire bottling hall. There's more we can do there for that on-site generation. There's a lot we're also trying to do to just use less energy through the process. So getting more efficient in terms of how we brew our beer and how we package our beer is an area of focus. And then we're looking more broadly at our supply chain too. And how do we help our glass providers or our other providers of raw materials think about being more environmentally friendly through their processes? We want to be able to address all of those different impacts that our industry and our company are causing. And so it's a pretty big supply chain we have to think through. And at some point, you may say, we need to purchase some offsets as well for some of the things we can't get at because the technology doesn't exist today, or we don't have control over those suppliers in the way that would make our goals achievable. And and that would sort of be the, the last thing that we'd invest in. But that's also a great way to, as a company to have a real meaningful impact. And there's great companies that can help us through that certification process and make sure we're purchasing the right offsets if we can't solve all of our energy production issues on our own. Do you have a fair amount of data that would suggest that, I mean, I know your employees care about this and I, along with you and countless others, believe this is the right thing to do and it's the right thing to continue to do. But do you also have research to suggest that your consumers want you to stay on this path? in terms of have less of a footprint to be able to pursue more sustainability measures and things like that, things that we've been talking about. Not that it should matter, but I'm just kind of curious if you also are pulling them and also there's data that you're also receiving to help support this. We talk about this internally a lot. If you ask consumers a question around, would you be more willing to purchase beers made by an environmentally sustainable company or some version of that question, you're always going to get a really high yes response rate. No one's ever going to say no to that question. It's a little hard to suss out from a consumer survey kind of perspective or focus groups or or those kinds of things. You do see it though in the marketplace. There are a group of consumers who do really do that research and really do recognize the companies that are leading the way and they will support them. Whether that's the majority of consumers as of today or not, it's a little harder to say. And so that's why we can't just be making the most environmentally sustainable beer. We also have to be making world-class beer. And we also have to be doing fun things with our brands and supporting our communities, doing a lot of other things to, to bring more consumers into the brand. But we think in the long term, we're striving for the right goals and more and more people will recognize that effort over time. Yeah. I talked to so many entrepreneurs about this and B Corps and They all say the same thing, which is it's great to say that you're going to do good in the world, but you better have a really damn good product because ultimately people have to buy something that's really good and then also feel good about that purchase relative to what you're giving back. Yeah. It may be the tiebreaker at the shelf for consumers because they do want to support a company that they feel good about supporting with their dollars, but they're not going to buy an inferior product. Definitely not. It's definitely a tiebreaker for me. Although my daughter likes to say that I have both geriatric and millennial tendencies. So (laughs) one moment I'm craving avocado toast and the other moment I'm looking for my readers because I can't read a menu. So 
there's that. But yeah, I think it's increasingly becoming more and more of a tiebreaker for not just millennials and Gen Z, but also Gen X and others. Totally agree. And I did notice too, are you still on this thing? Is it called the Bartisan Board? Did I say that right? Bartesian. Sorry, Bartesian. See, everything gets kind of cool and fun and crafty-like. And so that is a company that enables or I guess gives normal, ordinary folks at home an opportunity to create high quality cocktails, right? In their living room. They get that right? It's a pretty cool machine that allows you to essentially preload the machine with your own preferred spirits brand. So if you like Maker's Mark as your bourbon, you can use Maker's Mark. If you like something else, you can use something else. And then within that, you can purchase individual capsules or pods, which will make a perfect cocktail every time for you at home. So it's kind of like Keurig meets SodaStream meets a cocktail all in one kind of thing. I mean, I know we're not supposed to talk about that or is that the intent, but is that in the market right now? It is. It is in the market. I might have to check that out. We have someone on staff whose brother-in-law runs this amazing restaurant chain. It's a kebab chain or kebab chain, as they say in the UK. They have this drink called, it's the gin and chronic, which is basically a gin and tonic, but with CBD. So maybe you guys can have like a CBD capsule as well. And that could be something that people are interested in. That's a pretty cool idea. I do know a few people over at Bartesian, so try to get a machine sent over to your offices. One of my favorite drinks, although I don't know how you'd get the foam on the machine, but I'm sure someone can figure that out. Yes. So are you someone that you consider yourself kind of an enthusiast when it comes to spirits and to beer? I mean, I know you've had so many different roles in your career, but is this kind of like the perfect blend of everything you've done and consulting and sustainability and environment? And then also mapping it against things that you really kind of love in life in terms of just high quality, whether it's cocktails or beer or brews and things like that. It is. And even when I was a consultant, I was always working in consumer goods. And I love to be in an industry where actual people can go and purchase your product right, and and have an interaction with whatever it is that you're making and selling as a company. And I'm a big beer fan, still a spirits fan, tequila in particular. Fan. It's fun to be in an industry where consumers have fun with your products. And that's really energizing and, and makes it a little easier to come into work and you get to have a lot of fun. I mean, where I sit today and when I'm in my office in Fort Collins, you know, I'm only 50 feet from our tap room, which gets hundreds of thousands of visitors a year. And it's cool just to be able to go down there and experience that and experience our consumers coming in and enjoying our products and I'll jump behind the, the bar and pour beers sometimes if we're busy on a Friday. And I just love that. I love that interaction. Yeah. One last question, because I think it's an interesting learning for others who are going to go through or have gone or preparing to go through similar processes when it comes to selling your business. What do you think helped? I mean, you clearly are a very charismatic guy. It's obvious that you have very strong leadership skills and you're a good manager and you're an enthusiast and you seem very down to earth. And I think those are all things that help allay any fears around when there's a big event and when you sell your company or sell the company that you're leading. What else do you think that you did right? And is there anything that you might have done differently when getting employees on board and all of your partners and distributors in terms of understanding why sell and why now and what the benefits are? I think the thing we did the best was be really transparent around what was happening with the company and then also being really available 
to employees to answer questions. And I think that the fear that I've seen build in other organizations when they go through something like this, it really is a fear of the unknown. How is this going to impact me? How is this going to impact my career? How is this going to impact my family? And the more you can be transparent around, here's what's happening. Here's why we think this makes sense. Here's how it's going to impact you. Or for the most part, in the case of a New Belgium transaction, here's why it's not going to impact what you do every day. That's really important. That's what I found over time is the most important thing when you're going through change. And I learned a lot of that at Beam. Beam went through change multiple times. When I joined, we were part of Fortune Brands. And then we spun out and we became a public company. And then we actually got bought by Suntory. Those were all huge changes to a company. And I learned by watching Matt Shattuck was the CEO through all of that. He was my boss there and how transparent he was able to be with employees and telling them why we were making these decisions, why we were going through these transitions, allayed a lot of those concerns. And I took those learnings from watching Matt do that to help with New Belgium. And some of that was preparing employees ahead of time, ahead of the announcement. We talked a lot about the role the board played in making sure that we had the right ownership structure and that we were doing right by not only our shareholders who were our employees, but also our broader stakeholders, why we needed to be looking at options and thinking about the future differently for New Belgium. We would have those conversations ahead of time. But then also from the moment we announced that the offer from Lion, just really being available to employees was what was most important. And setting aside time for those conversations, no matter how long they take or how often you have them, that's what matters. And that's what New Belgium's really about, is about that transparent and honest communication. If those are your core values and that's what's important to you, in times of change, you actually have to overly exaggerate your core values to make people feel really comfortable that you're going in the right direction. Yeah. And it's that golden hour of the moment that you agree, whether it's a term sheet or memorandum of understanding and the moment that you close in those months where you really need to double down on communicating with your key stakeholders. Because there's only so much you can say in the run-up other than we're looking at alternatives and here's why, and here's why it's good for you, and it's here's why it's good for us collectively and together, et cetera, et cetera. But then once you make that announcement, the hard work really begins between that and close in order to hit all your goals because you need those people because they're the reason why you're able to get to that deal to begin with and you want to maintain them and incent them and hold on to them. Everything you said, plus as 100% employee and company, we had the added step of an employee vote during that process. And so you're not just dealing with employees, but you're also dealing with shareholders. They're the same people. And so walking them through the logic and what does that mean to them personally from a financial perspective is also a real important part of that, which is not something in a normal sort of acquisition situation you deal with because normally your shareholders aren't your employees. Belgium was unique in that aspect. But that added a need for even more transparency and more communication than you would necessarily have, I think, in a typical situation. Yeah. What percentage of the employees did you need to vote for? So we needed... 50% of the shares to vote in favor of the transaction. So depending on your tenure with New Belgium, not all employees have the same number of shares. The shares are allocated on an annual basis. So a 15-year employee is going to have a different share base than a five-year. So we needed 
50% of the shares to vote in favor. We've never released the actual vote total publicly, but it was an overwhelming majority of both employees by headcount number, but also shares that voted in favor. That has to feel good though. You don't need to disclose that publicly, but it has to also help reinforce that this is the right decision. Because I'm sure that many of those employees are very passionate and they have just as much vested in this as anybody else. And they'll tell you if they think it's wrong and it's a bad deal. For sure. And it did feel really good to get to the vote outcome that we got to. And it's felt really good to have some of those conversations around the brewery because this is really meaningful to people. We did talk about over 300 people got over $100,000 as part of the transaction, but a significant number of people got way, way, way more than $100,000 as part of this transaction. And that's really life-changing for a lot of people. And the way an ESOP works is typically this money would then funnel into essentially an IRA or a 401k. And so you're really giving people retirement security as part of this. And it's always been really important to Kim since she founded the company around this, around equality, around wealth generation. And this was the moment through this transaction where all of that equity that people had earned over their 10 years here was actually realized into something tangible, the actual price that was paid for those shares. And that took something that was a nice thing on a piece of paper that said, you you have this kind of value in your ESOP account. We actually said, no, now you actually have it in your retirement account. It's yours. Nothing can ever happen to that. It's been really great to see how people have reacted to that because it is life-changing for certain people the way we've been able to construct this and do this. And so for me, it will always be a career highlight that I was able to be involved in something like this and provide that level of security to so many of you. Yeah. And for the majority of the people in the world, the thing that we care or are most concerned about outside of health, of course, is if we can beat the health and we can achieve longevity, how do we finance that? To your point, that just reminds me, beer is good for you in many ways. Beer is good for you. Beer is good for you. Listen, Steve, it was great having you on. I know we can go on and on. What's the best way to follow you guys on social? And is there anything that you want to talk about briefly that's coming up that we might not know about or that we should get excited about before it hits the market? Well, in terms of following us, I would follow New Belgium and Moody Ranger on Instagram. That's the best way to stay up on both what's happening with New Belgium and then what's happening with our biggest and most exciting brand in Moody Ranger and Flat Tire as well on Instagram. Those are fun feeds and there's lots of cool ways to interact with our brands and our, and our company through that. So would love it if people could do that. In terms of new innovation coming out, we have a really cool beer called The Purist, which will be a lower alcohol version of a traditional lager. It's going to be just under 4% ABV. And it's going to be one of the very first USDA organic beers that hit the marketplace. And so that'll be launching here in about a month or two. And we think is going to be really well received by consumers. We have a lot of retailers who are really excited about the product. And I think people who listen to your podcast are likely to really appreciate the work that we had to go through to actually create a USDA certified beer. And so hopefully that will give it a try. I love the name too, The Purist. Congrats on everything. We'll look for that and we'll follow you on social. Thanks again for being on, Steve. Awesome. Thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. 
This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at The Bop Podcast and learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. Mm-hmm.